far from helping elders, they use their skill to manipulate and leverage others for their own gain. Think about our stereotypical picture of a politician, right? They say whatever they can do to get elected, right? Whatever you want to hear, as long as you punch that, that ballot box, right? And then they start working on you for the next time. Right? That's, that's the picture. There's plenty of people who have lots of skill, lots of wisdom that use it for their own ends. And so the editor, when he comes in and he puts this capstone on the teacher's wisdom, he wants to reassure us of the teacher's intentions, what he was going after, what he was trying to do with what he's presented to us. And it really shouldn't surprise us that the wisdom that's presented here, which is presented from Solomon's perspective, we've talked about that a number of times throughout, that that's presented as, as good and benevolent. Because we know that Solomon's wisdom was a gift from God. He asked for wisdom to help rule and lead the people and care for God's people well. And God commended Solomon's request because of its selflessness. He could have asked for wealth for himself, for power for himself, but instead he asked for something to be used to shepherd God's people. And that's the picture we see as the editor kind of draws out how this teaching in Ecclesiastes came to be. We see the picture of a wise man who takes great care and is so meticulous and methodical. This wasn't just a tweet of the first thing that came to his mind. The, the wisdom of Ecclesiastes was hard won. All right, so we see that he weighed the wisdom of the world. The passage says that um, he weighed and studied and arranged. This weighing means to test. You know, that, that image of that scale with the two things, something like the scale of justice, where so that's the picture, right? You're testing something to see if it adds up. He tested it, the wisdom that he found to see if it was good. And so it is a good warn against what was bad. When this talks about him studying, it's actually to explore, right? So he went and he searched widely for wisdom, for the best wisdom he could give the people. And then he gathered it together. He ordered it to make it accessible to He pulled all this stuff together to give it to them, to present it to them so that they could have it. It continues on, and it says that he didn't just search for any sort of words of wisdom, that he searched specifically for delightful words. Delightful words, words that were desirable, words that brought good and encouraged his hearers, that were satisfying and brought joy. But he didn't do that at a compromise of the truth. He wasn't just some mere crowd pleaser, because right on the heels of saying that he sought delightful words, it says that he uprightly proclaimed what was true. Right? He did not give in to the whims and the desires of the people. He sought to encourage, but he did so with an unflinching commitment to truth without compromise. So when you take these first couple verses and all that's said about how the wisdom of Ecclesiastes came to be, there is so much to commend it. The teacher used his gifts for the sake of the people. He didn't leverage them for his own platform or purposes. His process to do so was so thorough, so meticulous, diligent, discerning, and it was done benevolently, benevolently for the good of his hearers. That brings us to the second thing, because we have to reconcile all of that with the nature of the words themselves, which is what we see in verse 11. There we read that the words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. So it's it's interesting thinking about Ecclesiastes, the, the one phrase in those first couple verses that 
kind of stuck with me was the fact that he looked for words of delight. I was like, if you've read Ecclesiastes, delight is not the first word that comes to your mind. He's like, oh, I'm reading this and I'm delighting. All this stuff about how I'm going to die and I'm going to age and everything is horrible, everything's vanity. Delight is not what's coming to my mind. There's a lot of other words that I go through before I get to delight. So he might have looked for words of delight, but it seems very questionable whether or not he found them. Right? So how do we make sense of, we have these intentions, but how do we make sense of the words themselves? Because Ecclesiastes is a heavy book. It is unrelentingly heavy. It is bleak. At times it is despairing. The only colors are gray and black and never the shade in between, seemingly. It just hits you over and over and over again with the limitations and failures of this world and then your own limitations and your own failures. Just a couple little clips just to remind ourselves where we've been. Ecclesiastes 2.11 says, then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. 2.17 says, So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and a striving after wind. Further on in chapter 2, 22-23, What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. In chapter 6, we read this, There's an evil that I've seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them. This is vanity and a grievous evil. Chapter 7, in my vain life I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Ecclesiastes 7.20, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Lastly, Ecclesiastes 8.17, then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. Right, that's, that's rough. That's, that's not delightful words. They may be true words, but they're not delightful. They are heavy. They confront you over and over again with the reality, the limitations of what this world can do for you and your own limitations within it. It's no wonder we need to be encouraged to listen, because this is not the kind of thing we willfully want to sit under and hear. We don't want to hear about what things cannot do for us. We don't want to hear about how we are limited and how we are not autonomous and we are not independent, and that we cannot control things, and that we know less than we think we do. These are not things our flesh wants to hear. And so he says these words, these words of the wise are like goats. And that their teaching are, is like firmly fixed nails. So, what's a goad? Right? A goad is an old school cattle rod. Right? It's a long stick with a metal nail point. It's kind of hooked, curved to one side, that you would use to help herd your cattle. Right? Cattle aren't like dogs that run around all over the place. If they've got food, they don't want to move. They're just going to stand there and 
eat their food, right? But sometimes you need the cow to move, so you gotta make it wanna move. You gotta give it some incentive, and that's what a goat is for. You poke it, and then it wants to move, right? And so that is the picture that is being used here for these words. It's a picture of this long stick with a sharp point, right? A sharp point that gets used to make you uncomfortable. It's used to bring a little bit of pain so that you'll move, so that you'll change, so that you'll do something different than you've been doing. This is exactly what Ecclesiastes does. This is exactly what Ecclesiastes does, right? By nature, by nature, our flesh, we do the exact things that Ecclesiastes warns against us over and over and over again. We chase everything in this world to try to be okay. All sorts of things. We saw Solomon do this at the beginning of Ecclesiastes where he chased everything. He chased success and pleasure and wealth and wisdom. And he got as much of them as he possibly could and it just never satisfied. We do the same thing. We just can't take it as far as he does, right? We try to find it in our careers. We try to find it in our families. We try to find it in how religiously pious we can be. We try to find it chasing pleasure, right? We try to find it in anything in this world, you name it, we can put our hope in it and try to wonder that thing to make us okay. Right, and it's really uncomfortable to hear that that doesn't work, right? I've spent so much energy and time chasing things that promised that they would make me okay. You have too. And I don't like to hear that that's all sunk cost. That it was foolish. That it can't do what I want it to do. Because I want to be able to make it do what it, what it wanted to do. It's frustrating to our flesh. To know that there's nothing in this world that I can get enough of. That can actually satisfy me. And actually give me what my soul needs. Then perhaps even harder is the fact that it doesn't just show us the limitations of the world around us, the world under the sun. It shows us the limitation of ourselves. And this is what we really hate. Because we long, we long to be autonomous. We long to be independent. This is what we've been going after since Genesis 3. This is where sin started. It was the longing to be autonomous and to be free, to not need God, to be independent. And our flesh still craves that and runs after that. And Ecclesiastes just hits us in the face over and over again with the reality of how foolish that is. We don't know anything. We don't know what's going to happen in the next five minutes. My mic could go out again. You know, it happens, right? We have, we have no idea what's going on in the future, let alone any control over it. We have no idea what the things that are happening, what they're even adding up to. In the long run, we see such a small slice of the pie. We are so limited. We can't even keep ourselves alive. Ecclesiastes does not let us entertain any thoughts, hold on to any illusion that we are somehow self-sufficient, that we are self-contained, that we are okay on our own. And our flesh hates that. We hate being confronted with that. These realities confront us in the exact place where our flesh wants to go. This gravitational pull is always to look for satisfaction in the things of this world and to find your safety and your good through what you can do on your own. 
So the goad of Ecclesiastes, this long stick with the point, it hits us right in a soft spot, right? It hits us right in a spot where we so desperately want to feel okay and it makes us uncomfortable there. It tells us that it's a lie, that it's an illusion, that it cannot work. When that happens, because of the longing of our flesh, we can read that discomfort, we can read that as a threat. Because we're talking about a big pointy stick with a sharp, big nail on it, right? This thing is dangerous. And so when this hits us in something that we want, we read it as a threat, as danger. And realistically, that's a logical understanding, right? One of the judges of Israel, in Judges 3, Shamgar, he used one of these things to kill 600 Philistines to deliver Israel. These things could be trouble if in the wrong hands. And when we feel this discomfort in these things that our flesh so wants to go to, our next logical step sometimes is to think that the one wielding the goad is not to be trusted. Right? And so the, this pain, it's threatening something that I love and I care about and I want. So it must be coming from a bad place. This must mean me harm. But to respond well to the goat, to hear these, this teaching well, and to actually respond to it the way we should, we need to realize who's actually holding the goat, whose hands this thing is actually in, who's bringing the discomfort. And the editor wants to make sure we understand that very, very clearly. Because the primary source of these words that are such a discomfort, that, that rock us so deeply, is not the teacher. It's not Kohelet. It's not this guy who's been talking to us the whole time. He's not the ultimate source. The source of these words is the one shepherd. The one shepherd. His words are ultimately, they are not good because of all the steps he went through. They're good because they are echoing the words of the one shepherd. So this phrase is found two other places in the Old Testament. They're both in Ezekiel, and they make it abundantly clear that the one shepherd is Jesus. The one shepherd is Jesus himself. In Ezekiel 34, we read this. The Lord says, I will rescue my flock, and they shall no longer be a prey. And I will judge between sheep and sheep, and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. And he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. Set over them one shepherd. And then he goes into all this language about David. Right? This is pointing us forward to Christ. Christ is the one shepherd over God's people. And we get it again in Ezekiel 37, 24. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And my, David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. And I will make a covenant of peace with them, and it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them. And I will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Those are literally the words from Revelation 21 when the new heavens and the new earth comes down. Right, that last verse. And this is as clear as day pointing us to the fact that the one shepherd is Jesus. The one shepherd is Jesus. And this is where we need to realize, right? So, so this discomfort, these words of wisdom are coming from him. 
not just some guy, not just some wise man, but from Jesus himself. And he is not just the one shepherd of God's people. He is the good shepherd. He is the good shepherd. Listen to what Jesus said about himself from John 10. Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, he sees the wolf coming and he leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he has a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay my life down for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are out of this fold, I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock one shepherd. The reason we don't run away, we don't flee the discomfort of these words of Ecclesiastes, that we don't buck against them, is because the one who's holding the goad, the one who's bringing that discomfort, he does not mean us ill. He laid his life down for us already. He loves the sheep. Anything that he is bringing about to us, any discomfort he is bringing into our lives is for our good. Why in the world would he die for his sheep to harm them later? He does not. Never. Never. The character of the one who holds the goad, who brings that discomfort and brings those realities to the forefront, brings them before your eyes, has nothing but the best intentions for you. Always without exception, no matter how much that prick might sting and how much we may want to avoid it. It is not to make you fearful or uncertain, but to do the opposite, to lead you away from things that are shifting sand, things that will disappoint you and starve and poison your soul and into goodness. That's why he does it, to move you off of things that will not profit and bring you into life. His prodding is always to lead you to rest in peace, ultimately. You can trust it. If he died for you, why would he do you harm? Isaiah 42 says this about him. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick will not quench. he will not quench. You may be so weak, and in so much pain that it feels like the slightest prick would be the end of you. But the scripture tells us that the one who holds this goad, even the, you think about a broken reed, think about a braid of grass that's broken and hanging over. How fragile is that? That's the image here. He will not break it. That's how skillful he is at doing this. He will do exactly what he needs to do to get you where you need to be. And of course, his own words in Matthew 11, 28 through 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
he does not use his goad as a weapon. He uses it to lead you away from death and into life. So when Ecclesiastes, when it confronts you with your death, when it makes you look at the frailty of your body and your mind, when it forces you to see the limits of your control, when it makes you acknowledge the incessant, never-ending disappointments that this life holds, when it makes you see your own lack of righteousness and inability to merit anything before God, it is doing it only to drive you to look somewhere else. Not to crush you, but to drive you away from looking at those things and to drive you to look to the shepherd himself. I love how before he talks about himself being the good shepherd, he talks about how he's the door. Back in Jesus' time, the way this worked, the way shepherding worked out, the fields were pens and there was just an open doorway. And at night, the shepherd would herd his sheep into the pen and then he would sleep across the doorway. He was the door. So that if anything was going to come and get his sheep, anything was going to come, they would literally have to go through him. And that's what he is saying in that passage. He's like, I am the entryway, and once you are in my flock, once you have come in by me through faith, nobody gets to you without coming through me. Right? That, that is who this God is. And so his prodding, his poking, this discomfort that Ecclesiastes that he gives you when you are looking to yourself and you're looking to the things of this world is to drive you to look to where all the things you're looking for can actually be found. You want so badly to be safe here. We can't find it here. This is where you can find it, in him. Look here. You want so badly to be satisfied. You can't find it there. Pride, pride, pride. Look here. It is in Jesus alone. Look to the shepherd himself. We so want to resist that pain and that discomfort, to push back. But that is counterproductive. What happens when you push back on a nail? Does that go well? It doesn't. It's bad. And God uses this very image for, for Saul at the time. When he confronts Saul on the road to Damascus, when Jesus does, this is what he says in Acts 24, 16. And when he had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goad. What happens when you push back on a nail? More damage. What was going on with Paul is he was so desperate to be right with God. He was so zealous and passionate about proving that he was God's man, that he was hunting and murdering Christians, that he was zeal to try to be right with God. It was like the definition of pushing. He, but what he should have realized, that longing to be right with God, is that he could never be zealous enough. He could never kill enough Christians. See, there's nothing he could do to get to that place, but instead he just kept doubling down on his own righteousness to the point where he's murdering people to try to be right with God. This is what pushing back against the goad is. He did the opposite of what the discomfort God was bringing into his life did until God ramped it up by putting Jesus right in front of him and making sense of it graciously. 
we tend to do the same thing, right? We tend to double down. We chase satisfaction in something in this life, and when it doesn't work, we go at it even harder. Or we find something else that's in the same category, and we just go after that. Like, oh, well, career didn't do it, maybe family will. Or that didn't do it, so maybe pleasure will. Just thing to thing to thing to thing, and then you die. Right? That's not what this is meant to do. This is meant to lead us in a totally opposite direction. Not to push against it, but to have us look something else, look somewhere else entirely. When this life doesn't satisfy, the answer is not to get more and to go harder, but to look somewhere different. When you cannot be good enough to slake your guilt or overcome your shame, don't try to be better. You need to find it outside of yourself. We don't need to avoid the discomfort of the goad of this wisdom, but we need to allow the gentle hand of our Savior, Shepherd, to lead us out of the valley of the shadow of death and into his green pastures. The last verse in our passage is a warning. It reads, my son, beware of anything beyond these, of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. When we won't yield and submit to the prodding of Christ and look where his prodding should lead us, to him, through his word, by his spirit, we're vulnerable to the prodding of others right, and to the wisdom of others, wisdom that is not from the one shepherd. Others who by either ignorance or malice use the sheep for themselves rather than spending themselves in the care of the sheep as Jesus does they're more butcher than shepherd this happens in a few different ways it can happen from the world right if we do not heed the proddings of the one shepherd we can look to the world and look to their interpretations of reality which generally fit really well with our flesh and our appeal right the wisdom of the world is like hey do whatever you feel like that's an easy one to get on board with because you feel like it. It's, it's, it works. It kind of fits with whatever. It doesn't work, but it, it makes you feel good in the moment. Right, so it's very easy to run through a world with this stuff. But that's also maybe a little bit easier to see through. If we're in Christ, right? We, we have a lot of scripture and things to push back on that. But the primary and more dangerous concern I think that the passage is raising is when this happens in the midst of God's people. Not out there, but in here. The concept, the context of the one shepherd passages we read in Ezekiel is actually like ties in with this perfectly because it's in the context of God rebuking the human shepherds of Israel for the way that they were caring for God's people. They just carried loosely because it's not what they were doing. The beginning of Ezekiel 34 says this, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourself with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered 
They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth, with none to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely, because my sheep have become a prey, and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts, so if there was no shepherd, and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep. All right, if we don't keep Christ, we're going to listen to other voices. Other voices that cannot do for us what Christ does. And this, what was going on in Israel, where their shepherds were leading them astray, they were not caring for them while well, continued to happen throughout Scripture. We fast forward to Jesus' time. This is what he said about the religious leaders of his day. He said in Matthew 23, 4, that they tie up heavy burdens that are hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. This is a constant issue in the early church. Take Galatian, the Galatian church, for example, where some in the church were trying to inject works back into faith and losing the gospel in the process. Paul says whoever did this should be accursed. That's how serious it was. And this kind of stuff still happens, right? Where within the church, rather than proclaiming the, the words of the one shepherd, right? His law, right? That tells us what is good, what his standard is for the world, and then his gospel, how he has answered it. We add things onto it. We blend it together. We mix it up. We corrupt it in so many different ways. The prosperity gospel does this, right? It tells you, hey, no, find your good in things here. And you would have it if you just had enough faith. That's what it says. So just get more faith, have more faith. Go ahead, do it. Have more faith now, and then you'll be satisfied. So it's all well and good until something goes wrong, and then either God's a liar, or you are, you're fake. And you should be damn well fearful of, of hell at that point. It is devastating. Talking about butchering sheep, that doesn't. Right? Another way that this happens is when the law and the gospel get confused. Right? The law is what God requires of us. It's his standard for good. And the gospel is what he has done for us. Right? What he requires, what he has done. When you blend the two together, the law gets weakened. Because you have to make it into something that's attainable. So you soften it. And when you inject law into the gospel... It becomes no longer gospel because it's not a gift anymore. And so you lose both. The law is stripped of its holiness and the gospel is stripped of its goodness. Sometimes faith is redefined. This is what happened with the Roman church, right? They never said you're not saved by faith, but they redefined faith as including love and good works. Just wrap it all up and call it faith. You can't do that. <laughs> That's not the biblical definition of faith. Faith is knowing, agreeing with, and trusting something. Period. There's no work in it. You can't just put works into the definition and then still say you're saved by faith alone. It's not the same thing. But this happens, and not just in Rome and other churches that have come down. Pietism is another way this comes out. This has all sorts of different shapes and things, but, but at the core of it, it focuses in on the life of the Christian rather than on Christ himself. It is over-obsessed with what you do all the time rather than the work of Christ. 
And you're constantly wondering, did I do enough? Did I do enough? You look to yourself for your assurance. You look to yourself and how you feel about God and what you're doing to know if you're standing as right advice with God. And you can never know enough. You can never be passionate enough. You can never feel enough to know you're right with God. If you think you can, if you think you can find assurance there, you just dumb down what God demands of you. The only place you can find rest and assurance is in the work of Christ. There's so many other things I could say. I could spend a lot more time on those ones. But church, my, my point is just this, that there are all sorts of ways that the gospel gets corrupted. The gospel of free grace, that we are totally depraved sinners. We are dead. We are not sick. We are not unwell. We don't need help. We are dead. And we need life. And corpses don't ask for help. Corpses, corpses don't make themselves alive. We are dead in our sin. And the only hope for us for life comes from God himself. Right? And he regenerates us. He makes us spiritually alive. He gives us the gift of faith to trust Christ. And Christ alone in our standing before God is holy, completely rest in the work of Jesus. You add nothing to it. I don't care how well you live the rest of your life, there's nothing you can do to improve on the work of Jesus. You add any of yourself into it, you diminish it. You do not improve it. Right? That is the gospel. And there are 10 million ways we can degrade and fall away from and distort it. If we do one thing as a church, if we do one thing, if we guard the gospel, I look, Peter, or Paul tells Timothy this. He tells Timothy to guard the deposit that's been entrusted to you. If there's one thing we do as a church, that's the thing. Guard the gospel for what it truly is. That our salvation, our being made right before God, we have in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, period, full stop. We will not add anything to it, and we will not take away anything to it. Everything else can go to hell if we hold that line. Good. Let's do that. That is the one thing we cannot lose, church. Because that is life and death. Not life and death here. Life and death eternally hinges on this. And this is why we preach the gospel every week. We need to hear it over and over and over again because it is so easy to slip into and believe these other gospels that are preached to us. The common thread in all these things I've talked about is that they lead you away from what the words of Jesus will always drive you to. The words of Jesus are always going to drive you to trust. To trust not that the, world's, the things of this world will satisfy you, not in your ability to make yourself safe or to provide good for yourself, but trust in him alone. Trusted his perfect life as the only righteousness that's worth anything before God. Trusted his atoning death is the only thing that can make up, that can deal with your sin. Trusted his victorious resurrection for you. Those are the only things that can secure your good and safety. That's what scripture, that's what the words of Christ will always, always drive you to. And that's what we are going to relentlessly preach and cling to as a church. Because where else would we go? Where else would we go? There's nowhere else to go where we can find the words of life. This is it. 
Well, thankfully, God knows the world in which we walk. He knows all the things that we are constantly bombarded by from the world, from degradations of the church that want to lead us in other ways. And so he has given us means of grace, right? What we're doing right now is a means of grace, hearing his word preached and proclaimed. When we get to sing his word to each other, when we pray, when we gather together as believers to encourage each other in Christ and his sacraments that he gave us. These are means of grace. These are things that he has given us that he promises that he will work through. He promises that he will nourish and sustain our faith and that he will use this to help keep us in the midst of all those dangers. Think about that psalm we read at the beginning. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we are surrounded and pounded with messages that lead only to death all the time. But because of our shepherd, when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil because he is with us. Right? And that's exactly what communion tells us. Right? That is exactly what communion tells us. Communion reminds us that our hope is in Christ and Christ alone. In him only. And it reminds us that he is present with us and that he walks through all these hardships, all these challenges, all these words that we have to sort through that are exhausting. He is with us in the midst of them. So we're going to sing in a minute and we'll receive the elements as we do. Um, there at the tables on the back and the sides, there's two cups stacked together. The clear cups have wine, the purple cups have grape juice. Um, it's important to remember that this meal is for Christians, for those whose faith and trust is in Jesus Christ. That is who it's for, that is who it benefits. If you are not in Christ, if you're not trusting in him, if you're standing before God, this meal will not benefit you at all. It's not for you. And so we ask that you abstain and feel free to talk to me about that afterwards. I'd be happy to go into it with you. Uh, but this is a meal for the family of God to nourish and sustain our faith. So we'll sing as we do. Let's grab the elements and come back to your seats, and I'll come up and lead us through taking this. This means of grace that God's blessed us with. Him. 